Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester here with Autumn Privet, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And today we're talking to Catherine Chung, the author of The Tenth Muse, out now from Echo. And all the books that we talk about in today's podcast will be linked in our show notes so you can easily find them and add them to your bookshelf. And there's another link in our show notes that will take you to our website, readingwomenpodcast.com, where you can find a downloadable PDF with a transcript of today's episode as well. So we have some special news for you today. Uh, First, continuing our birthday celebration for Reading Women Month, we have launched our very first t-shirt campaign. The shirts have our tagline, Reclaim Half the Bookshelf, on the front with the Reading Women logo, and they come in a range of colors and sizes. So you can head over to bonfire.com slash readingwomen to grab one for yourself. That's bonfire.com slash readingwomen. And of course, all the information will be in our show notes. So now on to today's interview. Uh, Today we are talking to Catherine Chung, the author of The Tenth Muse, which is her second novel. Yeah, The Tenth Muse is a really interesting book. And the premise is that it is about a female mathematician who is making a name for herself in the 60s and 70s. But she is also trying to, well, I think Catherine actually described it really well in the interview. She said that her protagonist is going on multiple quests. And I think that is probably the easiest and most concise way to sum it up. She's trying to find out where her family came from. So there's some excursions back into World War II. She's also trying to find her footing as a woman in a male-dominated field, and so there's just all kinds of really beautiful and interesting things going on. So Catherine Chung herself is a mathematician, and she also has a degree in writing, and so she uses these two things for this novel. Uh, She is a recipient of the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship and a director's visitorship at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton for Mathematics. Uh, She was a Granta New Voice and won an honorable mention for the Penn Hemingway Award for her first novel, Forgotten Country. And she's won a bunch of other accolades and she just seems very, very talented. So we're very excited to be able to talk to her today. So without further ado, here's our discussion with Catherine Chung about her novel, The Tenth Muse. Well, Catherine, it's so great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on. We were really excited when we heard about your book because there's not many times that you have this collision of right brain, left brain with like a novel about math. So we're like, we're really intrigued by the premise from the get go. Oh, I'm so glad. I've always been intrigued about by novels about math, um, and I, I was nervous to attempt it myself. <laughs> yeah, so for our listeners who haven't read The Tenth Muse yet, uh, could you describe it for them? Sure. It's about a woman mathematician who grows up uh, in the 50s and goes to college, I guess, in the 60s. And it's it's about her talent in math, and it's about you know, the challenges she faces as one of the very few women in that field at that time. And it also ties in the history of mathematics and science, not just the history of women uh, in math and science, but also just sort of the the overall like global history of, of those things. But your main character, it, it's a fictional character, right? It's not based on an actual historical character. 
Yeah, the character is fictional, but she is very interested, as as I am, in these women um, that she sees as her predecessors. Um, and this is not your first novel. Uh, you also you wrote The Forgotten Country. So what has it been like writing a second novel? I feel like we hear a lot from debut novelists, but I don't feel like we hear a lot from uh, sophomore novelists. Oh, that's such a good question. So the experience of writing a second novel, I, I felt like everyone warned me that the second novel is harder, and I didn't actually find that to be the case. I thought with a second novel, I could play around a little bit more than I had with, with my first novel. It, it felt, you know, like there was less weight on a second novel in some ways. And so I could let my imagination go and experiment more than I had. I felt pretty relaxed about it. And I think it's only now in the lead up to publication that I'm starting to feel any kind of anxiety about what, what I have created. Oh, that's interesting. But it totally makes sense because, I mean, I've never written a novel. And so the thought of even completing something like that is so daunting for me. But after you have one under your belt, I could see how you could have a little bit of confidence like, oh, yeah, I can do this again and feel a little bit freer. That's interesting. Yeah. And I felt like with the first book, there was so much sort of at stake. You know, it's it's the thing that you introduce yourself uh, to the world with as a writer. And with the second book, it felt like I had already done that, that, um, mm-hmm. that I had less to prove. Well, that's, that's so fascinating. We always love hearing about how the process of how like a book comes to exist in the world. When we were reading about you in preparation for this interview, I read that you have an MFA, but you also have a degree and mathematics. So could you tell us a little bit about that journey about how you went from studying math to having an MFA? Yeah, I feel like everybody thinks that's strange, but I've met other writers who started out as mathematicians. And the truth is, I don't think of myself as having started out as a mathematician, actually. I've only ever wanted to be a writer since I was about seven years old, um, except that I thought that I would be a poet until... I applied to an MFA program and all of a sudden, for reasons that I still don't understand, I wrote the first two stories of my adulthood, I guess, and I used those to apply to the MFA programs. And ever since then, I've been writing fiction, but it really felt like math was, you know, a sideways excursion that I took because the college that I went to didn't have I'm going to say it didn't have creative writing classes, but it actually did. It had one class in fiction writing and one class in poetry writing. And so it didn't really offer a path in that way. And so I sort of discovered and fell in love with math while I was there and thought, why why not study this? I find that so fascinating because uh, when I was at school, there were a lot of math, but of math and science uh, majors who double majored in some sort of music performance. And to me, who is not gifted in any form of STEM, I was always flo- you know, blown away by that because I was a creative writing major in undergrad. And yes, I just think that's such a, a beautiful skill to have, to be able to kind of use both sides of your brain and then also bring that to your work, which is what you definitely did uh, in this novel. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is I did not like math when I was in high school. And I think part of it is because of the way that we're taught math when we're younger um, and we're not exposed to sort of the more creative 
or abstract parts of math, which is what I think I was drawn to. And I, I think I always approached math as a writer, if that makes sense. I was always interested in the language of mathematics or the beauty of mathematics or what it seemed to gesture towards. You know, there are all these beautiful words in mathematics like infinity or transcendent or imaginary or hyper-real. And I wanted to know what those words meant in the context of mathematics. And what I discovered is that mathematics is a lot about the underlying structure of things, how the universe works, what patterns are in it, what and I actually think it's not that far from poetry in some ways. I, I feel like those two disciplines are the closest to each other in terms of anything else that I've ever studied. It's interesting that you say that about like poetry and math and the relation because Catherine with a K, who's the protagonist of your novel, um, one of the things that stood out to me about her was, as you mentioned, like she's a she's a mathematician at a time when there weren't a lot of women who were studying math. And one of the things that's said about her is about how she approaches problems creatively, almost, I guess almost in a poetic form, now that I'm thinking about it since you mentioned that, um, which seems to make her stand out from her male peers who seem to perhaps approach it more logically or more formulaically? I think most serious mathematicians would say that they approach mathematics as an art. And Mm. if you read things mathematicians write about doing math, they're always talking about elegance and they're always talking about beauty. And they say that mathematicians appreciate beauty in in a proof or in a theory more than they appreciate utility. So they, they often say that the best mathematics is done in a way that may seem useless at first if it's only later that the uses are discovered. So I think in that way, math is also very close to art or to poetry. So it's sort of like mathematicians are the artists of the STEM world. I think they would say so. <laughs> so yes, but when I think about math or physics or all these other fields that we think of as sort of mechanical, I think when we depart, you know, these very dry formulas or these story problems about, you know, trains traveling in opposite directions and how quickly do they get to their separate locations or how far apart are they, which are the kinds of problems that I always hated when I was in high school. I I think when we depart that and we start talking about the universe and what makes the universe work, that in all of these disciplines, there's a kind of beauty and a search for truth or a search for some greater meaning. And I do think that these disciplines share that kind of reach, if that makes sense, in a way that when you begin to learn about them from somebody who's really passionate about them, it's it's very beautiful. I think talking about beauty and about poetry and all of these different things, it really makes me think about the story, which is based on a female mathematician, but you begin it with an invocation, which is a narrative device often used in epic poems. And that really harkens back to your title, The Tenth Muse. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how you came to this title, how it connects with the story? Sure. So I think that the invocation and the title came from a few different directions that converged. On the one hand, I was 
trying to write about the particular challenges of women in male dominated dominated fields, which, you know, is pretty much every field. And I was thinking about these grand stories, these epics in which the hero is is always male. And I was thinking about this tradition of invoking the muses. And I, I guess I started thinking about the muses and how they're always being called upon to tell somebody else's story, to bolster up somebody else's genius. And I got a little bit indignant on their behalf, maybe. And I, I thought, well, what if this isn't what they want to do? And so I made up this story about this, about this 10th muse who decides that that's not what she wants to do. She wants to tell her own story. At the same time, I've always thought it would be so wonderful to be able to invoke the muses and to ask some higher power to infuse your story with divinity, basically. And I knew for some reason that I couldn't do that in part because I felt bad for the muses, but also in part because I thought that the story that I was trying to tell was about how women don't have access to that kind of support that women so often have to do things on their own. And Mm -hmm. so I wanted to make an invocation that wasn't calling upon the muses, but was telling a story about them and trying to honor them in some way. And, you know, typically, I guess when we think about the 10th muse, we think about, was it play called Sappho, the 10th muse? Yes. And, you know, I was thinking about that, too. And I thought, why is Sappho the 10th muse when she's actually a poet, right? The, the, the nine muses are always inspiring other people. That's sort of their, their role. And so Sappho, to be called the 10th muse, to me, has always seemed somewhat problematic, yeah, mm-hmm. it's like he was supposed to be bestowing this great honor upon her, upon her when really it's just patronizing. Yes, I totally agree. There's something in there that's really complicated and and, tru- and troubling, actually. It does give your story like this really grand opening, though. And it kind of surprised me once I started reading it because I was like, you know, I studied I mean, all the literature I studied in school, I think, opened with an invocation of some sort. So I was like very, so I was very familiar with like the trope and how that kind of introduces the story. But one of the things that really caught my attention at the very beginning of the book, and I tried to follow it as I was reading very early on, Catherine says she's, as she's telling her own story about becoming a mathematician and she's starting to unpack her family history to us. And we learned that for our listeners that her mom is Chinese and her dad was a soldier during World War II. And there's some questions there that haven't quite been answered. But Catherine says, I suppose I should warn you that I tell a story like a woman looping into myself, interrupting. Things have never seemed straightforward to me. The path has never been clear. And the story does loop in over on itself. Could you talk a little bit about the structure of your book and kind of like why you drew attention to that at the so early on in the story? Catherine is on a quest or actually several quests when we begin this book. And I was thinking a lot about epic stories and how they're structured in usually quite a linear way. And the hero who's male has sort of a goal that he's trying to reach and obstacles that get in his way. And he, he achieves his goal or he doesn't. And I think 
that a lot of the men that I know do live their lives that way, but that a lot of the women I know have lives that aren't on such a straight trajectory. Um, they tend to get interrupted by, you know, having children or other things. Basically, I was thinking, how do you tell the story of a woman who is on a quest or several quests, but also has these interruptions in her life and also this sense of not being on that path or on that track you know, that feeling of that tra- that path being closed to her in a certain way. And I was also thinking about the way that women talk to each other. I know that my friends and I, when we tell each other stories, we're always telling each other stories in a way that loops around and we interrupt each other and we're always making connections and saying, oh, let me tell you this story about this other thing that happened to me that is somehow related to the thing that you are talking about. And so I wanted, I guess, to bring in some of that circular associative structure into the way that I organized the book. And I thought that was so interesting you mentioned about how women tell stories because there's a lot about, well, there's a moment where Catherine's friend or or Harriet talks about how folk tales were orally passed down to women um, and that has been their tradition. But when men wrote them down, the women lost uh, their agency in that process. Um, and there's a quote that says, uh, in the women's version, the girl gets away by her wits, and in the man's version, she's saved by the hero. Two different lessons, wouldn't you say? Uh, is that something that you were thinking about as you were writing the story about Catherine? Yes. I'm actually obsessed with fairy tales and folk tales and myths, in part because I think that the stories that we learn when we're young um, and the stories that sort of form our worldview are so important and often invisible. And so I wanted to have those fairy tales and folk tales and myths at the forefront all of the time so that we were thinking about how Catherine's own story lines up or doesn't line up and the, and the way that she places her story alongside these stories. I taught a class on fairy tales um, at Cornell when I was a graduate student. And it was really interesting to me because my students would always come in and they would be very excited, but what they knew of fairy tales were not even the fairy tales that were written down, but movies that they had watched, you know, that had been made by Pixar or Disney. And so they were shocked to find out that a lot of fairy tales didn't have happy endings. But they were also shocked because they started out the class saying things like, when I grew up, I just wanted to be a princess. And they thought that the class that we were taking was going to be some sort of escapist, happy place. And they were super disappointed to discover in the written version of The Little Mermaid, the mermaid doesn't end up marrying the man that she's given up her voice for. In fact, she turns into foam on the sea. And they were very depressed about it, but... You know, I said, think about it. If What would you tell your friend who wants to give up her own voice, you know, to, to give up her home, to renounce her family, to go off to try to win the attention of a man who's in love with somebody else and doesn't know who she is at all, right? Hmm. The answer isn't that it's probably going to end well. The answer is probably <laughs> that it's going to end very badly. And so... 
you know, I, I think that it's important to think about the, who tells the story and who the story is being told to and why, if that makes sense. Because a lot of folk tales began as cautionary tales for girls, actually, and they morphed into stories about romantic love in which the girls give up their power and it all works out for them. But in the real world, that's not true. And I think that it is dangerous and often damaging for girls who believe in these stories of princes or men coming to save them from terrible situations because they should really learn how to save themselves. And we'll be back with more of our interview with Catherine Chung after a word from our sponsor. I I do want to kind of circle back a little bit and you mentioned something about power and who has the power to tell stories. We try not to give spoilers away, so we might not be able to have this conversation, but I'm going to try. So there's this point in the story where Catherine is dating this college professor and he makes this grand gesture, which is a spoiler, and I'm not going to talk about that. But what's interesting, what I thought was really interesting about that is she's trying to explain to him after the fact why she doesn't appreciate it. And I so resonated with that because I feel like there have been so many times when as a woman, I've tried to explain to people why something they've done for me doesn't mean what they think it means because they still have the power. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. That's exactly the thing that I was trying to write about in that moment. And I feel like it happens because so often people are starting from different points, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And so what you do for a person who's in the same position as you is a completely different act than what you do for a person who's entirely in your power. And so, you know, that's, I think that's why it's okay for someone who isn't your boss to ask you out, but why it becomes much more problematic when your boss asks you out, right? Because Mm -hmm. suddenly all of these different things are at play and you're constrained actually in your answer. And the, even, even though the, the invitation, I guess, is the same, it's not at all the same. Sure, definitely. I just thought that I don't know. I did that just really struck me as something as I was reading. It seemed like so immediately relevant with some of the discussions we're having in culture right now about women and the role of women in society, honestly. So when you were talking about like the conversations that we are having right now in our society, and I think one of the things as someone who's not in STEM, I've been thinking about a lot by reading uh, things like hidden figures, for example, or women in science, uh, which is a lovely you know collection of essays on women in science who have often been left out of the conversation. There, there's so many examples in your novel where women's con- contributions to the STEM field are glossed over or unrecognized or have their work stolen outright. As someone who's you know studied in STEM, what was your approach to tackling this topic? Because I'm sure it's something you've thought about for a long time, but how did you boil it down to what you wanted to include in the novel? So it's interesting. I actually think that when I was 
a college student, I didn't think so much about this particular issue. And it might actually be because that wasn't the cultural moment during which I was studying. And mostly I was just trying to stay afloat, I guess. And I think maybe to be honest, also, I was never going to be making major contributions to the field of mathematics in part because, I mean, aside from the fact that I'm not sure that I would have been able to at all, in part, it was because I had always wanted to be a writer. But after I published my first novel, we, in publishing at the time, were having conversations about what it means to be a likable character as a as a female character, or what um, our expectations were for female characters, and also for women authors, and how often women authors were told to smile in their author photos, or that women were told that they also needed to be likable. And so I think because of this, I look back on my experience as a math major, and I started reading about women in history who had succeeded at math, and I began to think about it more deeply in that way. And so again, I feel like I approached the question as, as a writer rather than as someone who had been inside that particular milieu. So as far, as far as like your research process, because I kept forgetting as I was reading that the Catherine, the protagonist was not a real person because she's written so realistically. I eagerly read your notes at the end about all the research that you did. Could you talk a little bit about your research process? And there's some math equations in here too, and like kind of how you worked all of that into your writing as you were drafting your novel. Oh my God, you guys, the research process was so grueling. I felt like I couldn't really begin writing until I had a handle on the math that she was trying to do, but also the world that she was in. And so I I could imagine I was just in awe the whole time. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh yeah. There were so many times where I just felt like my brain had broken and that it was never going to be okay again. But basically I just read every biography of a mathematician, male or female, that I could get my hands on because I wanted to know sort of how people got their starts, you know, from what age they began to exhibit the talents that they had, you know, who they worked with when people sensed that they had this promise. And actually, one interesting thing that I discovered is that for the men who have done very well, they were discovered pretty young. You know, people knew or people had a sense that they were going to be very good at what they did when, you know, in the case of Gauss, as early as when he was in kindergarten. But with other men, certainly by the time they went to college. And for women who have done well, on average, actually, it's taken much longer for anyone to notice Mm -hmm. that they had this talent or they had this genius. Emmy Noter, who is probably the most influential and the most famous of women mathematicians, didn't really start to make a mark until her 30s. And that may be because, you know, when she came of age that you would go to college, women were not yet allowed to go to college. And so she audited classes, which she needed special permission for. And then I think a few years down the line, that university started accepting women for the first time. But, you know, the hurdles for her 
recognition and even her study were so much greater that it took a lot longer for anyone to notice. And if you read her biography, what everyone says about her was that she was a totally unremarkable person, you know, a rather indifferent student that didn't show any special promise. And so I thought a lot about that when I was doing my research, how very smart boys are encouraged from an early age and propped up and given access to resources, whether those resources are teachers or books or programs or acknowledgement. And women often are neglected, even though they have the same talent. And so that was one of the things that I discovered in my research that I really wanted to bring out. And in addition to sort of the books that I read and the histories that I read, I also was invited to the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, where a lot of really influential European refugees, including Einstein, were invited right before and during World War II. And so, you know, it's still one of the premier institutions for mathematics and science. And so while I was there, I got to meet a lot of people who have done amazing things in their fields and talk to them about like the experiments that they did when they were children and the challenges they had and things that most interested them. And I guess most most importantly, I met this mathematician named Karen Uhlenbeck, who is about the age that my protagonist is and who studied math in the 60s. And recently she won the Apple Prize in mathematics, which they sometimes call the Nobel Prize of Mathematics, and she's mm-hmm. the first woman to have done so. And so she told me a lot about what it was like coming up and, you know, the difficulties she faced, but also how fun it was for her and what it was like discovering math in college and how the path was cleared for her as if by magic. Because even though she did face I think more challenges than a man of her ability and her age would have. She also was in graduate school during the civil rights movement when Title IX was passed, you know, making it illegal for any federally funded institutions to discriminate based on sex. And she says for that reason, she was able to get a tenure track position and to have a career. And without that, she doesn't think it would have happened. And so that was also very interesting to think about, you know, the careers of women in the context of history. Well, we could probably talk about your book for much, much longer, especially if we delved back into fairy tales, of course. But before we let you go, we want to ask you a couple of questions. So the first one is, what books that you've read recently or that maybe informed uh, your study of this book? You've mentioned a few biographies already, um, but maybe some fiction titles as you were writing your second novel that you really like that you'd recommend. So Women Talking, have you guys read this? Yes. Oh, my word. I won't shut up about it to Autumn. It's probably so tired. It's next on my list after this book. I promise. I promise. Yeah. Women Talking, I just thought, was so extraordinary. And I love how it's this group of women in conversation, and the conversation goes round and round in this really beautiful way. But I think what was most exhilarating for me was these women starting to create a worldview on their own and realizing maybe for the first time that everything that they believe about their Bible and what's right and what's wrong has been given to them by men. So they're starting to construct a sort of ethical or moral code and a system 
I guess, of thinking or a system of being. And I just thought that there was a sort of freedom in that, despite the serious, you know, despite the seriousness of their predicament that I just really, really loved. I loved Trust Exercise by Susan Choi, which I thought was just extraordinary. And I loved the experimental structure of it. And I love Normal People by Sally Rooney. <laughs> I'm trying to think what else. I just feel like this has been a really good year for reading for me. And so I've kind of almost forgotten what I was reading <laughs> when I was writing my book. But there are so many books that I'm very excited about. Taya Avrecht has a new book coming out called Inland. Have you guys had a look at that one? It's this really sweeping epic Western. We just got a copy of that, actually. It is so gorgeous. It is so good. It's so exciting. I feel like we're in this golden age where women are writing with this kind of intensity and freedom that I find really exhilarating. Another book, actually, that came out this year is Gingerbread by Helen Oyayemi. And whenever mm. I meet her, I feel like she's writing as if none of the rules apply to her. <laughs> yes. And I love it. I love it so much. And so I guess when I say we're in this golden age, I feel like all of these rules are being broken and renegotiated and reformed. And I find that tremendously exciting. So many things that I've read this year have just blown my mind where I just thought how I didn't even know you could do that with a story or with a, with a novel. And so I just find it so really thrilling. We, we do as well. And you have mentioned so many of our favorites and we will list all of these in our show notes. So all of you listening can find them. Well, thank you so much, Catherine, for coming onto the podcast and talking to us about The Tenth Muse. We definitely enjoyed reading it and we really enjoyed talking to you about it. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. We'd like to thank Catherine Chung for talking to us about her novel, The Tenth Muse, which is out now from Echo. You can find Catherine on her website, catherinechung.com, or at chung underscore Catherine on Twitter. And of course, all of Catherine's information, including all the stops on her book tour, will be linked in our show notes. We'd also like to say a special thank you to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. You can find Reading Women at readingwomenpodcast.com and on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me at Autumn Privet. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time.